don't know this, then you're behind the times. The only metric that matters is convenience. Rules apply to you. Suddenly you're an advertiser. This week on Social Minds. Square it, square it. That was his chance to say that he had an assist from Kaka. We sat down with Kyle Elliott, who is the Senior Global Social Media Manager at Adidas, in charge of all sports storytelling and partner publishing. Adidas, of course, needs no introduction. The brand is notorious for its exclusive drops and social-first activations, its Tango Squad WhatsApp activation and its Rent-A-Pred hotline being just a few examples. Yes, as Eve mentions throughout this podcast, we're big fans of Adidas and the way they approach social. So naturally, we've both been incredibly excited for you to hear this episode. As well as going over some of the sports giants' previous campaigns, we discussed the current social media craze surrounding Clubhouse and Discord, why World Cup footballer Kaka turning up at an East London five-a-side pitch was a perfect storm, and what brands could learn from creating an underground WhatsApp community of super fans. We should be the ones providing like the insider close to the athlete, close to the team access that they wouldn't otherwise have. All this and more coming up. How can sports brands leverage exclusivity to create mass interest? I think you've got to start with what makes sport great. And one of the things that makes sport accessible and democratic is that it's open to everyone and everyone can have a different point of view on it. Sport can be for the 15-year-old FIFA addict on his Xbox or PlayStation, as much as it can be for your dad who's been a season ticket holder and has been a fan since the 70s. When it comes to what consumers really want off the back of that. There's an element of personalization when it comes to exclusivity. It's a space for expressiveness and owning a small part of a sport, making it their own and aligning it with their own personal values. Consumers really just want to express this. And one of the ways to do it is through product and exclusive product. And why does exclusivity, why why does it prove so successful for sports marketing when uh, we are in an age and well, when it is a sector that has such huge mass appeal, you know, sport is incredibly popular. And yet there's that nugget exclusivity that works so, so well. With sport, again, it's an element of kind of owning something that really brings it a little bit closer to you and, and maybe something about the club, the sport, the individual athlete that kind of sits really closely to, to, to your heart, right? Um, exclusivity, I think, can not only mean things like hype drops, you know, things where you've got to sit in a virtual waiting room and, and hope for the best. I think exclusivity can also mean, um, a great example is I'm based in Germany, uh, working for, for Adidas. And one of the things that we see from the Bundesliga clubs, who are all about really expanding internationally, a lot of football clubs will, will tell you quite openly that they're after a North America audience, an Asian audience. Um, but one of the things that they do quite consistently is deliver things that are really hyper local. Um, and, you know, I hope that that kind of rings true for a lot of people listening to this podcast is hyper localization as a form of exclusivity. Um, for example, 1860 Munich, um, they, uh, Munich's obviously the home of Oktoberfest. So every year they will put out an Oktoberfest kit, um, FC Köln like Cologne, home of the carnival around Easter. Um, and those guys will do a carnival kit. And these are these are moments that are really, really exclusive to the city that they're based in and the consumers and, and the fans that are kind of loyal and close to them. You won't find them on the big worldsoccershop.com in North America and, and you won't find it in Rebel Sports in Australia, but you will find it in the club shop in the city. And that's its own kind of form of exclusivity. 
um, in addition to that sort of expansive hype culture. It's it's kind of like a nice counterculture, which the Bundesliga clubs over here uh, balance really well. Mm, that's a really nice way to look at it. I mean, so you say it's not all about this hype culture, but do you think exclusivity has been watered down perhaps over the years because drop culture is now really popular? So the people, you know, who started doing it to be a little bit different, it's now sort of well, I wouldn't say like the done thing, but it is a lot more popular. So it's a lot easier to be a tastemaker in that sense. Do you think that's had an effect on how effective the exclusivity is? I Yeah, it's it's a really interesting point because I think I think drop culture is kind of one end of, of a very broad spectrum. I mean, um, the, the idea of exclusive product and, and a drop that's only accessible to a small amount of people, like on one end of the scale, you've got like the supreme brick, right? You know, if anyone saw that, it was in two, three years ago. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that Supreme can collaborate with pretty much anyone and uh, and and it will sell through their kind of exclusive channels. And <laughs> it's, it's again, a way for people to sort of say that I'm, I'm aligned with, with this. I love Supreme. And even if it's a little bit kind of avant-garde expressionist to kind of put it on a brick and say that we can still sell that, it's, it's kind of a way of saying this is something that's so close to me that I, it's a collectible. It's something that's to say that like I was there then. Uh, so that's your kind of proof positive of the hype. Um, I think on the other side of things, you, you've got uh, a very sort of um, like handmade sort of culture where people are, are bringing elements of, of sport a little bit closer to themselves through unexpected channels. I think things like um, vintage football kits is a great example. I, I think that mm. if you have um, if you have a particular affiliation to a club or something that's a little bit kind of counterculture, you know, you can go down the option of trying to track down like an old football shirt from a favorite team or from a favorite player. Yeah. Um, I even think that there's an element of this in 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 the women's kits. Um, obviously, some of the women's kits that were on sale during the Women's World Cup um, the uh, in 2019 were a huge success in terms of sales. And that was kind of, I think, a way of saying that I'm not buying into the main line. I'm having something that expresses my personal values and the things that I choose to take from the game uh, in the form of this jersey so it's, it's again i think it comes all comes down to that expression do you think there's an element of like competitiveness to it as well i, I think so right i'm gonna make some fairly aged references here but you know i think this is more my older <laughs> brother's generation than mine but like there was always there's always been this in sports and and i think for a brand like like adidas we've we've been through this before um in the 70s and 80s with like the casual culture um mm. that was all about following your team, going to the terraces, um, particularly, I think, in, in the northwest of England, but then it, it sort of spread everywhere, right, where you would have um, guys who would buy, you know, trim traps, speciales from the local foot, uh, footwear shop, but they would also follow the team away. So they'd go on these big European adventures where they'd spend all night on a coach. And then before the game, they'd go check out the local sports shops. And because of distribution and licensing, there was like exclusivity on the continent that they couldn't get back mm. in the UK. So when someone found like their team colors on a really unexpected pair of Adidas Hamburgs or handballs, then they would then take those back to the back to the, the terraces on on a Saturday or Sunday, and and basically mm. they'd have that head turn, you know, that people get now when it comes to you know a, a Stone Island jacket or something like that. It's 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 yeah. something that's always been present in sport. It's just interesting to see it manifest again um, in a in a more digital way. 
I was going to say that's a really interesting point, Carl. And my next question for this really was going to be, do you think social media has in a way hypercharged that or has it just sort of brought it to the fore and to the wider sort of conscious? Well, I think it kind of comes to Eve's point of, of everyone is a tastemaker now. I think that in a small group of friends, like it's, it's a great way to demonstrate what you've got. You know, it sounds very materialistic, but I think that you can't just post about your inner aspirations all the time. I think that when you get something cool that um, you think embodies your identity and uh, maybe something about your personality that you're particularly proud of, of course, social media now gives you a platform to do that. And in sport, there's also this, um, there's a need to, to project to be close to it, I think, because as I say, Everyone can have a little bit of sport in their life. They can watch the games on a Sunday or a Saturday. They can watch Match of the Day. They can watch the athletics, the Formula One. But then um, putting that out on social media, it kind of puts up this this big uh, like bat signal, right? So that if anyone's browsing your profile that says like, hey, I'm really into, you know, X football team or I love watching athletics, then you are going to find more like-minded people that way who are going to express an interest in you and what you've got to say because you have that affiliation. And, and of course, one of the ways to do it is through product. And we naturally have um, algorithms on various platforms that can make finding those people much easier, make discoverability easier. I mean, social media like fashion and like trainers, you know, the trends change and happen so fast. How does that either sort of consider or how do you realize which social media platforms are worth your time when there are so many coming up new and, and different areas of intrigue? That's, I think that's, that's a really interesting question when it comes to, I think people who are listening to this podcast will kind of recognize that very brand versus very personal thing that we, we probably all go through every day. I mean, social media managers, right? If you go to uh, an event or you work with colleagues or, or partners, you'll recognize that social media managers come from all sorts of different backgrounds, right? They can be like, you know, the, the traditional marketing path. They can be journalists, former journalists. They can be um, digital experts, digital natives. Um, but one thing that unites us all, I think, is is the curiosity. It's it's this idea that you want to you see something new in an industry news, or you see a, a competitor or an account you follow try something, and it's the desire that that makes you want to try it again <laughs> yourself the, the next day mm. uh, that probably unites us all. But um, I think that if you're thinking in a more branded sense, it's it sounds a little bit on the fence, but but it's a balance that you want to strike between where your consumer is um, and where they expect you to be. Uh, I think that Abby Abby Clark on your TikTok episode um, a couple of weeks back really had that interesting anecdote that was even if you're not actively like outputting content on a platform, um, if your consumers are asking like customer service questions on there, uh, these are consumers who are right down the bottom of the funnel. They're ready to convert. They just need your help. Uh, so even if you're not outputting on that channel, it's if you're looking to add value to, to a business from your seat, like that's such a great way to do it. Um, so I think that having a presence, you know, pretty much anywhere where, where your consumer is, is something that you should at the very least be considering uh, based on like your resource and capacity. No, definitely. I mean, Kyle, specific to sports marketing, because we've talked a little bit about exclusivity, I'm interested to know your thoughts on some of the more closed or private chat-based platforms that have been emerging recently, or even you know features in themselves that are designed to be a little bit more closed off, a little bit more localized. So things like Clubhouse, Discord, 
Uh, you can even go into things like Facebook groups. How are they playing into sports marketing? And have you found them to be particularly important considering the way you use exclusivity? It's a, a good couple ones that I'd, I'd pick out there. It's probably a Discord um, as, as kind of a first step on that question. Like Discord, I, I think as marketers and as agencies, uh, although I'm sure social chain definitely going to blaze a trail here, uh, aren't really... Scratching the surface, I think, of Discord, you know, the idea of servers and the automation elements that they've got on there are particularly powerful. Um, you know, I've seen or experienced, have experienced with um, uh, bots on Discord that will allow you to kind of opt into experiences, integrate to Google Maps, you know, add things to your calendar, basically anything with an open API. So Discord mm. is a very, very exciting platform um, that I think is going through a, a growth spurt at the moment, not in the sense of audience, not in the sense of users, but in the sense of how they're opening it up to, to uh, people beyond gamers. It, it started in the gaming space and a lot of their UI elements were all very sort of gamer friendly, right? It was like you'd open up the you'd open up the app and it would give you like a Rick and Morty reference. It was that sort of audience that they were going for. And I think that now that they're, they're sort of realizing with the maturity that comes with the time uh, that they've developed the platform, that this can be open far beyond, you know, one vertical. This is something that can add value mm. to, to communities everywhere and, and indeed brands. So um, more of a general one than sports there. Sorry to, to, to get uh, sidetracked, but uh, Discord's <laughs> an interesting one for me. Um, I would say uh, just to go to Clubhouse for a second, because obviously the, the growth on that since uh, December in particular yeah. has been spectacular. I think as a sports brand, I think the, the first place that your, your, your mind would go is that how do we bring the great partnerships that we have into a, a branded Clubhouse space? I think that mm. the immediate thought that you have is, athletes or ambassadors if you're a um if you're a premier league football team at the moment uh you probably have a roster of ambassadors that you usually have uh, an agreement with for hospitality for uh, stadium tours for meet and greets and those guys are not necessarily doing much at the moment because of the pandemic so yeah. immediately you see this great space for clubhouse to 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 bring value in and have like a legends evening on clubhouse which is i think uh, a fascinating proposition, um, mm. particularly uh, when it comes to the way consumers haven't maybe necessarily been onboarded with Clubhouse yet. Not super campaign friendly, not very visual, but by giving something that adds an incredible amount of value, which is the chance to hang out with uh, with with someone that they probably revere or, or have an image of, then it gives uh, it gives immense value. I think. Mm. Have you had more freedom with that kind of thing since the pandemic? Just because you touched on that and it's something I've not really thought of, obviously, with there being less like actual live events and live matches, have you actually found that you've got more time with them than you normally would have to create that kind of content? It's, it's created, I think, a real uh, paradigm shift for, for us. We've relied um, sort of massively in, in everything, you know, from an Adidas side, but also um, on other projects. And, and you'll see it across uh, every industry on on user generated content or uh, now asking partners and content creators to essentially sort of become the same thing. You know, for someone mm. who might be uh, an Olympic sprinter or a marathon runner, you know, these guys focus usually on their training and they're not always asked to like post that glamorous boot picture or, you know, they're never holding up a jersey when they're a new signing, for instance. So um, with these guys, they've, they've maybe not had a request like that before you know these these people they are um just focused on their sport usually and then suddenly being asked like can you become a content creator for for a second and, and kind of you know try something new it's it's pushed 
I think not only uh, brands, but also partners, uh, athletes, mm. uh, influencers out of their comfort zone. Mm. And, and Carl, from your own experience as a, uh, you know, working in social media, I think our listeners would be very keen to know what your approach is when it comes to experimentation with new platforms. Because on this podcast, we often say, you know, the best ways to get on, for instance, TikTok, the best ways to get on TikTok and just see what other people are doing and sort of use it as a user first before thinking on a branded level. But <laughs> probably answered part of the question, but what's your... <laughs> sort of bespoke approach to things like this and especially with when it comes to like clubhouse and discord uh, it's a really interesting point because i think that what a lot of people would prefer to do is kind of go in and get their hands dirty straight away like how can uh, how can we make this happen like how can i tomorrow start doing something on tiktok when it comes to to, to my brand or my business and i i think that is a really healthy attitude to have i think that um i think the being comfortable with pushing yourself into those situations is is what will make you brilliant in your field. What I think is often challenging is that, you know, you might have seen this in interviews with guys that develop products in the past, but like our our campaign is usually built largely around a product. And that product has been in development for two years. And we will then begin a, a cycle where we then sort of build um, a comprehensive marketing plan around it. And there's not always the agility, I think, um, that personally, uh, we would we would want, and that's not because of the brand. That's kind of you know a, a siloed mindset. I, what I would say is that I personally need to be more comfortable with the fact that we will you know be forgiven if we try new things. You know we are lucky enough to be um, part of a, a large brand. You know someone something that's got a lot of history. And I think that if we if we open a, a TikTok and it's a flop, like it's not going to be the first thing that consumers think of when they think of Adidas. They'll think, oh, what a what a rubbish Instagram Reels debut that was. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll never consider them again. So I think that I think that personally, for me, like um, making room for experimentation and 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 also sort of being comfortable with it is something that I definitely want to grow into as as I continue to develop. And two of my favorite favorite uh, Adidas campaigns, I'd say, well, I mean, there have been so many, but two of my favorites uh, in recent time, apart from all the Arsenal stuff that you do, is the Tango Squad mm. that you guys created on WhatsApp and the Rent-A-Pred uh, sort of hotline. I was just wondering if you could fill us in on the sort of learnings and takeaways that you you, you, you sort of took from those campaigns in terms of that exclusivity culture, that social first mindset. Uh, two two really, really strong examples there. The first one, I, like, I'll touch on Tango Squad because I've got a bit of personal experience with it, was working as part of a, an incredible football marketing team at the time. Um, and one of the things that was very inspiring um, being part of that was a mindset shift to commit to the idea. And that's something I think that is powerful because it extends beyond any one campaign or any one piece of content. It, mm. With Tango Squad, we had... Um, closed WhatsApp groups or Facebook uh, groups, depending on you know data protection and accessibility in, in in different parts of the world, where we actively sought out um, the most enthusiastic consumers, the the best local football players in the city, and we brought them into one um, sort of closed garden environment. And one of the things that we needed to do then was to find content to serve them and keep them interested and excited and top of mind. And that was, I think, just one of the most um, energizing and, and also, I'll be honest, a little bit frustrating things about being in, in, in the team was 
if we were doing any one thing that could be a uh, a shoot with a football team for a new kit or a a big budget sort of um, production for a new football boot or an event, the question that was always at the very top of the docket was, what can we do for the Tango squads? And that meant I would be in the background being like, uh, you know, could we do something with influencers or the uh, the social team as well? We're, we're like, we're going to open a Snapchat. Can we get something? And it was always about prioritizing the fact that these are our consumers. These are the people that um, that we love the most. And, and we've committed to, to giving them, you know, a, a personalized WhatsApp shout out, you know, from a relevant local talent. It could be as simple as signed product to then give away in the group based on a level, level of interaction. But then when we started getting a little bit braver with it, these consumers were then, and the stars of our event, uh, they even made it uh, into the campaign creative and, and brand campaigns as well. So we, uh, we, I think we really did put um, the Tango Squad uh, sort of, not so much campaign, but the Tango Squad, it became a pillar. It became a, a pillar of our marketing toolkit. And that, um, that was something that I think is, is always difficult to try and harness on a long-term level. But um, I, I'd like to think that we did a really good job of it. And for context with the Tango Squad, these people weren't influencers necessarily, were they? They were just ordinary sort of fans and, and consumers, like you say, in WhatsApp groups in different locations around the world that you obviously fed you know, exclusive content to and via WhatsApp, like you say. If you've been a listener for some time, you'll probably notice that Theo has talked about Tango Squad, I'd say every four episodes <laughs> or so. One of his favourite examples, which is testament to how good it was. Oh, completely. Oh, thank yeah. you. Thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and the rent a pred activation as well, which saw, you know, the world-class Kaká, the Brazilian famous footballer, arriving at East London five-a-side game. And the, the concept behind this was for the Predator boots and it was to rent a pred, rent a, rent a player if you were a man short, a, a person short in your five-a-side team. And I just wondered if you could talk us through that campaign as well and the sort of learnings off the back of those. Yeah, I mean... First of all, all credit goes to uh, goes to our team in London on that one because um, we obviously have like an overall concept for for a football boot, and and with Predator, the idea was control, but also the unfair advantage with this brand new Predator model, the Mutator, and and. Um, by and our London team basically took the idea of the unfair advantage, and and they weren't afraid, I think, to go off channel with their thinking. You know, they said we're going to create this renter pred concept where if you are a consumer in London, um, you can have a, a a personality or a professional footballer turn up at your game and give your team this unfair advantage by simply WhatsApping the date and time and, and like location of your game, and and then you'll get a ringer of of like world class um, standing. So those guys took that insight. They they found a really, really interesting way to activate it. They brought in a load of local talent. And I, I think what I would say as someone who's a, a step removed from it in my role, one of the most interesting things for me to experience about it was not only did the London team manage to give an incredible experience to a handful of, of consumers in London, but they, uh, they managed to find this tentpole moment that gave it reach and scale beyond London. In fact, I think took it global global. And and that's exactly what you're talking about there, Theo, which was the 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 caca moment. You know, it was uh it was a kind of a perfect storm of things that happened, right? It was uh, not only having a, a World Cup and Ballon d'Or winner show up at a seven-a-side pitch in London, but it was also this kind of very football, very London um, insight of of one of the players uh, as Kaká was through on goal, saying "Square it, square it!" So play the ball, <laughs> put, put me in. Probably uh, thinking that was his chance to say that he had an assist from Kaká, uh, and that that kind of like. <laughs> 
really, really um, football-specific insight, a little bit of humour, and also this kind of perfect um, uh, sort of uh, stage that had been set by by the Adidas London team uh, created something that gave it scale. And I think that if you can find in in any uh, off social activation a small moment of magic uh, that you can that you can sort of find a way to put on social, it really is. That and, and probably PR are the only channels where I think you can add immense value additionally to what's already been delivered. Um, if you if you just have that kind of quick thinking and presence of mind. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, we, we've talked a little bit about channels. I want to dig deep into the actual audience itself now. I remember a few years ago, we brought out a big piece of research about what modern sports fans expect from sports brands on social and teams being uh, included in that as well, club pages. But like everything else, I expect it's changed for five times over since then. So I'm interested to know what sports fans are looking for now. So the new generation that's come along where where do they like to spend time on social? What do they like to see? And where are they most happy for brands to participate? I think the, the modern sports fan, you guys will be well aware, they are living and breathing sport 24-7. They have numerous yeah. touch points. They And they're not really confined to any one channel. It might be that they're Twitter live during a game. It might be that they're Instagram uh, following their favorite athletes. Um, and then beyond that, like it's it starts to get a little bit um, a little bit more diverse where they'll spend their time. I mean, you know, I think you could probably start to make the argument that things like Xbox and PlayStation, uh, Xbox Live, PlayStation Network are kind of social media platforms for sport when it's during uh, FIFA Ultimate Team sort of games or unpackings on YouTube. Like these sorts of, of, of moments are, um, are where the sports audience are spending their time. What is really interesting is is as a brand finding the right ways to play in that space as as it's curated by consumers because I think particularly um, North America and Twitter at the moment, especially during a game um, beyond sort of Europe traditional European sports, basketball, American football, you'll see these brands being taking this moment, this great cultural moment where millions of fans are invested in it on a, a weekly basis to to kind of. Uh, to borrow a Twitter phrase like dunk or get dunked on. Like (laughs) it's a a bit like the Wild West in that sense. But I think generally you'll see a lot of sports brands kind of stepping back at that moment because, you know, we are the ones that sponsor the teams or the the federations or the leagues. Um, We go on photo shoots with the players. Our colleagues might be negotiating a a contract the day after. You know, this is, it, it could all be misinterpreted in ways that could harm the relationship. So I think that for us, um, being involved in ways that you might see other brands and and, and I say us as the, the sports brand collective, it's maybe a little bit wiser not to join in that specific part of, 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 of the consumer behavior and expectation. What I'd sort of build on there is that I think that as a sports brand, it's our where we're expected to be or, or where we try and carve out a niche, niche for ourselves is that we should be the ones providing like the insider close to the athlete, close to the team access that they wouldn't otherwise have. Uh, yeah. It's, I think, a good piece of sports content, particularly during a game, during reactive or play-by-play, is something where a consumer is able to look at that and say, that's how I feel about that. And that's been expressed perfectly by this brand. And that, I believe, is where you can really strengthen the bond and the association between consumer, athlete and brand. And touch on athletes there, Carl. One the question I'm really keen to ask, and I suspect it's the case in all sports, but particularly football, this idea of 
player power. I just wondered how you approach, you know, how talent has played a much bigger part in the strategy now. So for instance, the example probably uses somebody like Pogba, who, you know, you can base whole campaigns around. It's it's not necessarily just teams or, or the fans. Oh, he got his own house flag, didn't he? Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's the, the guys are walking, talking, campaigning ways, I suppose you <laughs> say. So how do you bake real authentic campaigns around talent? I think it's, it's very much a luxury problem, right? Like the idea for, for any of us working in, in the industry that we work in, that you have this partner, this athlete or entertainer who is weekly viewed by millions of people uh, performing at the pinnacle of, of a sport or, or game. And it also happens that they're an incredible personality that, that, trans, that also translates well across into sort of visual and video image uh, on social media is is oh, it just it's just wonderful, isn't it? It makes your heart sing. <laughs> it's something that maybe for some of the other sports, like obviously football is a great one because you can associate certain elements of a player and the way they conduct themselves on the pitch with things like obviously their team, their kit, their footwear. And I think where it becomes really interesting is where you create something with a partner that does as much for them as it does for your brand. Um, because I've I've definitely been on the receiving end of pitches before where um, it's been a very, very exciting idea. But ultimately, after I've gone away and chewed it over and think, uh, well, it doesn't really do much for, for, for us. It's a great job of using our platform to elevate a partner. And, and that's at times exactly what you want to do, particularly if they're giving a particularly strong stance on something. But I also um, I also believe as well that if it's, Part of a campaign, it should do. Uh, it should feel like this. This coming together of of two great brands, right? You know what's happening with your brand and what's happening with the athlete. Mm. And going beyond that, Kyle, how does say a brand like Adidas go beyond talent and the traditional influencer marketing route and leverage advocacy? You know, among the fans and that sort of real brand fandom. It's very interesting, I think, because. There's, I think as an industry collectively, um, we're only really scratching the surface of, of what we can achieve when it comes to that, that sort of one-to-one advocacy. Influencer marketing will always be an important part of, of our marketing mix, but I think as a pure sort of social media um, output element, where we're top and bottom of the funnel, right? Simultaneously, when it comes to advocacy and the generation thereof, we are the megaphone that's constantly broadcasting our brand belief or our product. Um, but we're also the one that's having the conversations on a one-to-one level in the comments and the DMs. Mm. I think we've had some great examples. I think the ASOS one uh, on, in particular with the uh, the lady who was uh, given some very rude remarks by a gentleman on Tinder. And they kind of came in, swooped in, took her picture and, and elevated her into part of the uh, the e-com imagery. It's <laughs> a great example of, of a way mm. that they've built advocacy there and then in that moment, not only with that one individual consumer, but with everyone that thinks and, and, and feels the same way that, that, that she did in that moment, which is obviously goes beyond gender. You know, everyone's had been on the receiving end of a backhanded compliment, right? And that's, that's I think, something that you can really, they, they generate their own value and, and they definitely boost those, those vanity metrics. Mm. I, I think beyond that as well, like we're, we're really lucky to be sat um, where we're sat in Adidas as a brand because we've got communities like the Adidas, Adidas Runners where anyone, regardless of their uh, footwear brand of choice, can, can join a running crew in a physical or digital sense. And that is a... That is a really powerful thing when it comes to advocacy. If, if you've got a branded experience that's open, it's accessible and, and gives consumers the ability to get into a sport, I often think 
if I were to relocate to a brand new city tomorrow, the first thing I'd do is try and find an Adidas runners group so that I could, mm-hmm. you know, start to, you know, get my feet on the ground and meet some new people because like that's something that would be important to me in that moment. And and if we can deliver an experience that enables that, I think that's super, super powerful. Imagine that is a luxury of sports brands, isn't it? Because it's such a sort of active kind of means of consumption rather than I don't know, an FMCG brand, it's quite passive. It's, it's probably much harder to create communities around. Conflicts club. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> <On sports clubs. laughs> That's fascinating. And uh, one thing I want to touch on as well is, I, I know I've already mentioned Arsenal, but um, you know, being an Arsenal fan, incredibly impressed with the recent Adidas Originals uh, launch that um, Adidas did for the team. And to me, watching that campaign as well and seeing uh, the IGTV video play out, it felt noticeably uh, social first. So I was just wondering, um, and it seems to be a continual trend that we've seen over the past few years, how, if, if you could get to the bottom of how social media is really influencing future and current Adidas campaigns. I mean, that's that's been a really fascinating shift to be able to sort of sit and watch and, and, and I guess be a part of is, is the way that the kind of media neutral creative that, that comes in, that's kind of the central idea of the campaign has shifted away from being this 30 to 60 second TV spot. It, it, it then became YouTube. And then I think maybe probably like trying to get stuff like viral on Twitter. And then how we create that for Instagram now is, 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 is really at the heart of things. Um, if you to take social overall, I think like, uh, I'm sure this reference has been made before, but I think like the Drake hotline bling video was something that, really uh, epitomized and gave us this great sort of flagship thing to point at and say like this is a video that's been made exclusively to be broken down into gifs and screenshotted to become memes right the whole point was these constant looping moments that were surprising it made you wonder what you were going to see next like we learned a lot about storyboards and scripts for those surprising moments uh, and how they can be broken out into ways that can be um, then broadcast further on social and add more value, more views to your, uh, to your deliverables. But mm-hmm. I think that beyond deliverables as well, it, it also kind of loops back around, right? Because if your storyboard has constantly been challenged to deliver something exciting and, and visually arresting uh, every few seconds, I think that you on your longer campaign piece as well, when you put that out, particularly on social, you're going to see a, a better uh, view through time. You'll have a, a longer dwell time because... Mm-hmm. The consumer is constantly wondering where this is going to happen next. And I think that the, the Arsenal team um, did a wonderful job of that with that video because, uh, I mean, <laughs> that went places I never expected it to go as well. <laughs> <laughs> I completely agree. I think with that, like, like you said, the sort of the amplification, the way it sort of came out, it, it seemed like a really creative use of, of IGTV. And I think uh, what we always say is with, with social first is that mindset of, yeah, you can make something work for social, but did you create it for social in the first place? It's not just been mm. repurposed for the format. And I think that really came across uh, in that particular campaign as well as many others. Yeah, we've seen it a lot with music videos. I find it interesting you use the Drake example because it's it's very sharp thing to point out. I know we've, we've seen it now, people making music videos specifically designed for certain sections to be cut and made into TikTok sounds or like specific things to be made into TikTok dancers. I think it's sort of the most smart, proactive marketing strategy you could take at the minute is having that in mind beforehand. It's a good observation. It's it's a, a really sort of um, key thing, I think, for, for, for musicians and artists, so particularly, I think, because the consumption of music and um, the experiences associated with it has, has kind of disseminated a little bit. It's 
Um, it's not something that's centralized in any one place uh, like it would have been with, you know, MTV or, or The Box or, or something like that, or even just YouTube anymore. You know, we've kind of matured beyond yeah. that. And as you mentioned, TikTok's the, the ultimate uh, kind of example of that. It's generating some level of participatory experience that you can be involved in now, which is like, is crazy, right? Like, you know, everyone remembers uh, school talent shows or whatever, people lip syncing along to to, to, to songs that were, I was going to say that were popular. I think some of us time, would rather so. forget. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you've now got something that's kind of opened up and said you can watch the video and now you can come and join in and, and people mm. will uh, people will will celebrate that. Right? It's uh, it's it's actually kind of a I hope like you know a bit of a, a watershed moment for 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 the music industry. And uh, I wanted to touch on this point actually. I didn't think of it before, but it's been talked about advocacy. We talked about influence to marketing to a degree and one of the things we've sort of spoken about in the past is this idea of big brands now being in a position where they can kind of relinquish creative control to creators and influencers i mean for like a massive global brand is that still quite a hard thing to do or is it something that's quite instinctual something that makes much more sense you know influencers sort of being the masters of their own craft it's a really interesting point particularly when it comes to to us at adidas because we were um around the time i joined the brand we we had this directive we were told that one of our sort of pillars of, of uh, as a brand was going to be the idea of open sourcing things so not only would you see more collaborations when it came to when it came to to product but also we should try and um, open up like our our mindsets to, to different creative avenues and, and I think that that's exactly what over the last five years we've uh, we've kind of transitioned in our mindset to be a little bit more open to that um it's still it's still difficult I think because as a marketer, you know exactly what you're trying to achieve. And I think that we often place a lot of belief in the things that we know and are familiar with and that we can see. And, and when we, we work with an agency that, that comes with an amazing portfolio, a director that's got a great showreel, like all these things are, um, are things that build your confidence in it. And when you put an element of the campaign that you're particularly proud of or you want to be proud of into the hands of, of kind of the unknown, it's... It's still it's still intimidating, but I I often think it's the right thing to do. And and again to the to the point earlier about new channels and stuff, you know, you you will be forgiven for it. It's okay, you know, like it's it's as long as you as long as you do everything the right way. As by which I mean, as long as you don't underpay someone, as long as you you know sort yeah of, have good intentions exactly. Then I think you're always going to come through. Um, and and even if it's not brilliant, you can you can learn from it. And I, again, I appreciate that I'm talking from a very privileged position where I'm currently employed at a brand where if if I if I lose a little bit bit of budget on something that underperforms, I can then test and learn from it. And that's not the case for I'm sure everyone in the audience. Um, but I think that, you know, to, to speak to the general question of, of opening things up and opening your, your campaign creation and your marketing materials creation, it's, it's actually been very health, healthy. And I think we've, we've had some good results from it. That's great to hear. To second that as well, I don't think we often give enough uh, credence to the fact that it is a big thing to sort of relinquish that creative control. It's easy to mm. just sort of say, you know, this is what you've got to do. But like you said, if you know sort of what works and, you know, different elements of things and there are nuances, then it, it can be tricky. One thing I want to touch on is, well, one area that we've not spoken about much is AR and innovation. But aside from all of that, what would you say is the real 
pearl that makes a social campaign work? What is it that consumers want to latch on to? Is it that ability to meme something, to be involved, or is it something else? I think I'd probably break it down into sort of two elements. I think that, um, which goes against the question of one pearl. Please forgive me that, Theo. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I'd probably say that in social media in particular, I think consumers are looking for for, for cut through. I think they're looking for an element of the campaign that, that speaks like, almost directly to them, as you say, participation, uh, something that, that marks it out as something that they've, they've told us in strategy meetings two years ago or, 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 you know, consumer feedback on the campaign that we've done before it's gone live is, is important to them. And that can be topics like sustainability. It can be uh, topics like inclusivity. But it can also be something that rings true on an emotional level. You know, again, like you mentioned Predator earlier, not a project that I've worked on for, for a little while. But, you know, I think Predator and this mentality that, that it embodies on the football pitch is, is a way of reaching that consumer. And given how crowded the sports landscape is at the moment, it's, it, it gives you, I think, that that's the kind of secret sauce, right? If you can connect on an emotional level and give the consumer the, the opportunity to see a little bit of themselves in a campaign, then you're probably doing your job right. Um, I think on the flip side, you'd also say that you have to also, or the consumer expects you to also be able to cut through your own marketing world that you've created oh, yeah. to give them help when they need it. Everyone listening that's, you know, sort of worked on social for any amount of time will, will have been on the receiving end of this, right? Your post goes out, you're buzzing about the creative, we're launching a brand new Snapchat filter, drive the traffic over there. The top comment there is, but when are you going to filter through your inbox and get to my refund that's been processing for two weeks? Like, yeah. You go out it's and like, like every response to like tweets by airlines, especially recently, they can't do anything without Twitter being like, where's the refund? Exactly, exactly. And, and it is, it's the same with everything, right? And, and just because this is one of the most important things for you in, in, in your world as it goes live and it's, don't get me wrong, it is. It's the culmination of, of hours of work, yourself, your agency partners, your teammates, and it's, it's all perfectly valid. But in that moment, that consumer is not going to become an advocate by that, that content. They're going to become an advocate by giving them the help that they need, which I think is something that is true in any consumer goods industry, right? I think that this is not just a sports or, a, or even an Adidas thing. This is an opportunity to, to constantly sort of like remind ourselves as well that these are real people. And in that moment, that's the most important thing in their world when they see your brand name. And if you can deliver something there that takes them through hopefully a good experience, then that's going to do as much as, as a really great video around, you know, a brand new marathon record or something. I think that's a great uh, overriding point good and point. definitely something that we shouldn't steer away to and forget, you know, that we are serving the consumer on whatever channel it is, and especially social media. Mm, that's why it's called serving content. <laughs> exactly, <Yeah>. exactly that. <laughs> I mean, Carl, thank you ever so much for a fantastic episode. It's really great to get an insight into Adidas and I'm sure for many of our listeners who will be, first to say, they're big Adidas fans of not only the product, but the marketing. So thank you very much for your time and for sharing some of those pearls of wisdom. Yeah, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. It's nice to give back as well. Social in Six and uh, and some of the episodes recently have been uh, have been great listens. So uh, so I look forward to continuing listening and uh, obviously skipping the one of me because I don't like to sound my own voice like everyone else. Oh, <laughs> come on. You get used to it. <laughs> You're not the only one. I'm, I'm exactly the same. <laughs> the one, <laughs> but yeah, fantastic. Thank you very much, Carl. Thanks again. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please remember to leave us a review on iTunes because it really, really helps and allows us to bring you brand new episodes every single week. This has been the Social Minds Podcast with myself, Theo Watts, Eve Young, and produced by Ollie Thompson. 